Welcome to another episode of the Clay County Beacon Podcast. Today I have with me Joe Dallas Mulatto, who is running in the Republican primary for Florida's 3rd Congressional District. Joe, got to say, appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Tell the people at Clay County a little bit about you and what uh, is driving you to run for Congress. Sure. I, I really appreciate uh, being on the show, Josh. Um, my name is Joe Dallas Mulatto. I'm a conservative Republican. I'm a small business owner. I'm a native of Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I'm running to inspire people, simply put. Um, I worked in Washington, D.C. Uh, since I was in you know 2007 as an intern for former Congressman Cliff Stearns. Um, on day one, uh, you... If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., um, if you're ever looking you know, to work there, we always say that you would know within 24 hours if that's a place that you want to be or not. It's very fast-paced. It's not for everybody. And sure enough, there's a, um, it doesn't get a good rep in terms of you know, the swamp and the corruption there, but that's my whole point is if you see something wrong – um, you make one of two decisions. You get put one of two columns that you see it and you want to change it for the better or you see it and you agree that that's how it is. So politics is politics and that's what we've always been saying, but it doesn't always have to be. So the reason why I'm running is to break um, the stigma, this, this thought that average regular day Joe Mulattoes, the average day Joes and the Janes can't run for Congress because they don't have the right name or a million dollars. So what we want to do is show people uh, a David and Goliath story, modern day, that in America, in 2020, that we do, in fact, have the inalienable rights to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And if a qualified individual like myself, uh, I'm not looking to win specifically. I just want a fair shake and a fair shot and we want to put it to the challenge if it's money or for its qualifications. We see what money and the past has given us twenty what six trillion dollars in debt. So I really think that 2020, 2020 hindsight, people have to make a really big decision in terms of we see the problems and what do we want to do about it? Now don't you have 10, not the lesser of two evils uh, election. You have many, many possibilities. You have 10 different options here. So I think that if every group does their job, educates their voters, every voter does their due, to diligi uh, due diligence, I believe that we shock the world and we win this election August 18th. Um, that's good stuff. Hey, I'm going to uh, kill our videos, just so you know, because um, it's starting to rain. I'm going to edit this little snippet out. <laughs> it's starting to rain at my house and, and my internet goes wacky. Um, so it'll make it easier just to submit the audio. So I'm going to kill our, your video and my video real quick. That's cool. All right, cool. So you talked about the average Joe. Uh, yeah, other thing before, or that's no, fine. No, it, it was fine, but I could tell it's about to do its thing. It does where video and audio uh, is going uh, at the same time. I've uh, learned yeah. its tricks. I actually watched the uh, the uh, the Colonel the, the the there's a stat you can pull up when you click on one of the meeting things, and I know when it starts to do a thing that's about to act wacky. So um, I like I like what you said there about. Uh, you know, the average Joe being able to win, because I do think even at the local level, like it's too expensive for people to run for office. Like you either have to spend your time by going out to get people to sign a petition or you have to actually spend your spend money to get on the ballot. Um, so let's say you do pull off this David and Goliath story. Let's say you do win. Um, wow. When you get to Washington day one, you hit the ground running. What are your what are your priorities what are, when you get to Washington? That's 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 a really good question. 
Um, and a lot of people are going to have, you know, these broad stroke talking points. They're going to say, um, I'm going to get, you know, good staff that knows what they're doing and we're going to talk to the constituency and we're going to hold China accountable. That's, I mean, that's generally not what's going to happen. That's the first mistake is that people have these expectations. They're going to get all these good committees. They're going to do all this and that. But the reality is, Josh, is that other than Joe Mulatto, who's already been there, proven, tested, it's going to take them about, what, eight, nine months to get their office running. They're uh, going to be shaking hands and doing orientation like it's a field trip. Uh, and then, you know, next thing you know, it's a couple of months, re-election, then rinse, rush, repeat. So when I do say I could hit the ground running, I mean that. So what I mean by that is I don't got to relearn anything. Um, yes, you could always continue to learn about better issues, um, different perspectives, but the base knowledge in terms of the processes, how to file things, how to introduce things, how to get them from the introduction to the finish line, which is what should be most important about a voter is that you could take an idea, your story, your issues, introduce it, work it, set the traps, run it through the process of legislative hearings, markups, full committee markups, house passage, Senate processes, and then enactment. And then from there, that's just the beginning. Now, okay, it's law, but there needs to be the implementation process and then the enforcement if you know, implementation and enforcement. So what I'm going to do within my first 100 days is I'm going to set the record in terms of introduced bills. And these are going to be substantive bills, not resolutions that don't do anything, uh, but things that we're talking about on the campaign trail, things that I've been already working on, like veteran suicide and mental health in my uh, previous position. So carrying on the things that I've already learned, coupling that with the issues and the engagements that I've been getting um, talking to voters, I think that I'm well positioned to hit the ground running. Um, so we'll introduce bills in my first 100 days in every standing committee. So that's one for energy and commerce, one for veterans affairs, financial services, the list goes on. Uh, so I've done the work. I was in the trenches. I know what I'm looking for. So I'm going to build, uh, build my staff so that I could use it properly. Right now, people use them to hide their vulnerabilities, to write and think for them. I'm going to use it like a frontline general like I am, where I already know these things, but I'm only one person. So they're going to be an extension to me. So what I'm going to do is hit the ground running, introduce some bills, and we could talk about any issue um, on this uh, on this interview. But, you know, he's sky's the limit in terms of helping veterans, uh, protecting Social Security, improving health care to be more transparent, affordable. Um, but that's what I'm going to do is actually do the things that I say I'm going to do on the campaign trail which is very unique in politics. Yeah, interesting. Um, you don't hear anybody, at least I haven't heard anybody say that within the first 100 days they're going to uh, be able to, to get in there and actually file bills uh, to, to enact legislation, right? So that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, uh, you talked a little bit about, you, know, you touched briefly in your, your opening comment there about the $26 trillion uh, you know, federal debt. Um, how... What are your ideas on how to fix that? I mean, clearly, you know, from your comments, you're sort of in line with me where it's awful and, and terrible and we shouldn't be, you know, so far in the red um, and it's untenable, unsustainable, right? So what are your thoughts around, like, how, how do you go to Congress as, as one guy? I mean, because as, as passionate as you are, uh, if you make it to Congress, you're still one of many that are in Congress. How do you go to Congress and make a difference in, in terms of putting a dent in that national debt? 
Um, so not to backtrack, but there, there is a correlation. So this is, again, the David and Goliath story. The reason why people don't run is because they assume that they're never going to win, that it's an uphill battle. Um, they're never going to win. These people know what they're doing. They've already had their teeth sunk into it. But again, it's a game changer. If they see that we are successful, I'm going to share my blueprint to anybody that's willing to join the front lines with us. I don't care you know, what party, what, who you are, what state. This is the only way that we change it and get these things moving is if we do replace all 435 currently. And the only way we do that is if we inspire, educate, teach people what we, I'll teach everybody what I know. I'm not, in Congress when I was working there, they told you, they would always teach you to not teach everybody everything you know because they're going to be gunning. They're going to be chomping at your job. And I said, I don't agree with that because you could always learn something new. You could always be better. You could always self-improve. So I'm not scared. I'm never going to look over my shoulder to see. The people who look over their shoulders are the ones that know they're not doing their job. I do my job, I'm running my election the way I've always worked, which is chasing chasing a dream, working hard towards it, going a million miles per hour laser focus, and I'm not even looking. I don't have time to look over my shoulder because I'm looking at the finish line. So that's the first part is getting more of the regular Joes in there. We the people of the people by the people that have no safety nets. When you're playing poker, you're very loose with your money because it's fake money. But when it's your money, when you got skin in the game, yeah, you're not going to be authorizing these three trillion in a blink of an eye. Right. You know what? As me and you, we're, we're going to have to. We're, we're the ones. Our generation and those younger are going to have to foot and pay for these disastrous decisions. So my point is, if that's the case, and the previous people up there right now have failed us. And it's been decades. If you've been there for 20 plus years and you're in leadership, then it's double your fault. You've had more resources. So the point is once we start getting more people like us with skin in the game, then the whole game changes. We start making this job a very unappealing job. And the only people eventually soon enough, and I don't care if it's within our lifetime, but starting this noble mission, day one, this is day one for us in this mission. So it might be 100 years from now, 200 years from now, but if we follow this plan, this is, this is the long game, changing politics forever. So once we do that, we'll have more like-minded people to actually pass things uh, and get things wrong. So Because the system right now is broken. We're a good Republican and good Democratic ideas are supposed to float you know, I mean, simultaneously um, work together, compromise. But compromise out there means a backroom deal saying, if you vote for this, then we'll give you that. That's not a compromise. That's a backroom deal. And it was never going to help the people. It was going to help the people within those closed meetings. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, a couple of points there that you made. Um, I think as much as people love to hate on her, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sort of proved that if you – if you get enough momentum from a grassroots campaign, you can absolutely get to Congress, right? And I know, you know, she's a member of the other party, whatever. I don't agree with half of the bill she wants to pass, but it does give credence to what you're saying. The more we can get the the old entrenched, you know, career politicians out of there, you know, in my opinion, the better, right? I don't think that if you were to... <laughs> 
pull one of the founding fathers from the ground and ask them if they thought being a member of Congress was supposed to be a full-time, you know, lifelong job. I don't think any of them would be like, oh yeah, that's how we wanted it, right? That's what we designed, yeah. uh, you know. And, and what you have are a bunch of people who are so disconnected from what regular ordinary people go through on a daily basis that, that it's almost impossible to expect them to make laws that would actually benefit or, or take into account like how people actually live. Right. So, you know, I, I'm always, I'm always drawn to sort of an underdog story. Um, and, you know, part of what you're saying, uh, you know, with uh, them telling people not to teach everyone what they know, that's a symptom, you know, of the greater disease where you've got these people who are who are in there and their main concern is growing and keeping their own power rather than enacting legislation or even, you know, I think we ought to repeal a lot of legislation because we have so many laws in the books that literally everyone can't go through a day without committing a crime you didn't even know you committed. Um, right. it, you know, so there's a lot of truth to that. And because we do have people like, you know, AOC winning on the other side, and I'm not a, you know, not a Republican anymore, but I'm certainly, you know, I've told many people this, I'm certainly not a Democrat either. And I think some of her ideas are wild. We do need people that are on the other side of the political spectrum that aren't entrenched politicians to sort of combat the the terrible ideas of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So it's good to see somebody like you running. Um, you know, let's talk about the elephant in the room a little bit with uh, COVID-19 and, and kind of healthcare in general. Um, what are your thoughts on on how the the federal government and Congress in particular has handled this crisis? Is there anything you feel like they've done well? Anything that you know you wish they would have done differently, or that you might, if you were in Congress, have done differently? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's yes, and I don't even know where to begin. If I was in Congress, I would have done everything differently um, because I, I've seen it since 2007. Um, just the different names, uh, but it's the same exact scenarios, same stories, same issues. It's a merry-go-round. It's Groundhog's Day. And to be honest, there's people like me, there's people like you who see these things. And that's why uh, people don't mention, and that's why I, people don't mention this, but there are s twice as many non-political affiliations out there, which is a really big warning sign for me, but nobody else seems to think so that tells me that there are twice as many people out there that are fed up with both the garbage of both parties yep. um that you know they say i didn't leave the party the party left me and there's some truth to that there is some truth to that where you know if you plot like what we've been saying republicans and democrats it's been the same arguments the same stalemates um but at least back then when i was an intern and a staff assistant and rising up you know, I have colleagues on the other side. It has to be bipartisan. It is a two-party system. And I think what people sadly are talking about is a one-party system where right. they care more about which parties came up with the solution as opposed to actually solving things. You know what I mean? Like, so if I, when I was up there and we were discussing this and I was meeting with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, if you look at all the bills that I've ever worked on and introduced for Gus Bilirakis or Cliff Stearns, um, the Veterans Affairs portion especially, where, I mean, we could all agree, the party sides, we all, taking care of, your, taking care of our nation's veterans isn't a, a party side you know, issue, it's a national priority. So it was very good that I got two spectrums, the Veterans Affairs, which was pretty bipartisan, then you got you know energy and commerce, which obviously there's gonna be a lot of um, political battles there, right. but at least, there were substantive arguments. We were talking, what, in 2008 that, hey, uh, the Affordable Care Act might not be a good idea because uh, Fortune 500 companies are saying that they have smart people over there and they figured out 
it would be cheaper to just pay the penalties and not actually offer the insurance, which actually turned out to be happening. But back then, Democrats would say, no, they're just fear-mongering. That's never going to happen. And the thing is, Republicans do it too. We we want something to pass so bad because we want to just keep holding majority. But I think it's hilarious because it doesn't matter who's in the majority if your whole strategy is to make the other side look incompetent so then you get the majority next Congress and we just keep doing this back and forth. This is exactly what we have. We haven't moved anywhere in any direction. We haven't picked. We haven't made a consensus because they don't want a consensus. And we've just been throwing billions and trillions out the window while everybody talks about uh, reducing the deficit. We've raised it 1.1. This COVID um, bailout. Yeah, the small businesses needed you know, help and assistance, but the way we did it was business as usual. Right. It was let's figure out how much of it is to somewhat solve the problem, then let's figure out how much it is uh, to, to grease the wheels so we could actually get this through in the House and the Senate when that dollar amount farly exceeds that first amount, which isn't a good formula. Then they give us um, some hush-hush money in the form of a stimulus check, uh, which is pretty much our money getting paid back to us. But, you know what I mean, that's it's, it's the same old thing. So COVID, yeah. And then back to everything, it's preparation. I wouldn't blame this administration at all. It is it's a world pandemic. So it's individuals who aren't taking it seriously. When you had somebody in New York uh, that was throwing a corona party, you know, is that right. the president's fault? Is that is you know is that anybody else's fault? No, that's personal responsibility fault. So I think we were COVID shows one thing that we are absolutely unprepared. We were talking about all the wrong things. We were passing all the wrong things. And yeah, we have American grit. Yeah, this isn't the first. Um, um, situation it won't be the last but can we keep rolling the dice like this you know why why did we try to figure out how to educate children during a pandemic why were we only trying to figure out how to have a infrastructure to make sure that people could telework and, and work safely and that things you know didn't uh, fall off the rails when something like this happens during a pandemic what about two years ago what about four years ago what about any of these other um, you know, instances, SARS, H1V1, you know, swine flu. It was like, it's like we get past the scenario and we don't learn from it. And then we're surprised the next time it happens and we're like, oh, uh, we got to throw more money at it. Yeah. And part of the problem you have too is, it, you know, you can't trust the news that you hear. Um, you know, like the, you, there, there's bias, you know, in, in many of the major news sources, either for or against, you know, what the current presidential administration is, is trying to do or not do. Right. I, I am, you know, <laughs> people think that this is crazy when I tell them, I actually don't think it's the government's job to save everybody from everything. I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's just reasonable to expect a government that covers the amount of territory that our nation covers and the amount of people that it covers to be able to enact blanket solutions during a pandemic um, to, to, to save everyone from dying, you know, from a disease that admittedly is got awful. Like it's a terrible thing. COVID-19 coronavirus. It's, it's terrible. I don't wish it on anybody, but you know, people dying over a lot of stuff every day. And, and, and it comes down to people want the government to step in and save them from things when, when, the best way to protect yourself is through what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, personal responsibility. If you are a person who thinks that the COVID virus is a risk to your family, 
you should have the ability to protect your family and take precautions for yourself, right? Now, it's complicated because we've got compulsory schooling, you know, mm-hmm. in our country where kids are required to go to school and some schools are opening, some schools aren't. Um, you know, so it's, it's a complex situ- situation for sure. But but I just think, like, I don't, I don't know what anyone, you know, I'm, I'm a big detractor of the current president, not a fan, right? Uh, but but I, I look at what he's done and I go, I, I don't know what the heck else do you expect the man to do? Like, like you said, like you have people throwing COVID parties where they purposely invite to a party of sometimes hundreds of people, someone who has the coronavirus to see who will catch it and how many people will catch it. Like people are dying from their own stupidity. Uh, You know, and I think sometimes, you know, the government can't save everyone because people are dumb. Like some people are just dumb. So um, it's interesting to hear you. That's the case. And then, but, but the thing is, the problem is that we've come to a culture where, leaders and members and people representing them are supposed to you're supposed to represent your constituency but you're not supposed to just blanketed pander to them so it's like you can't just move your line stand for what you believe in and let let people a hundred years from now figure out if you or we were right or wrong but i think again people are um People are rushing into things, not knowing what they're talking about, doing the same thing. You think any of these members, most of them, if you were asked them after their interview or before, you think any of them actually know these things? No. That's the other problem is that we know that people are getting smarter and know that some of these members that are uh, saying that you have to do this, you have to do this, when there isn't any 100%. There isn't. They don't have all the facts. So that's there's a slew of problems that we right. just mentioned about the public trust, mentioned that people, personal responsibilities. But you're right. When I ask people, I go, well, if it was Obama or if it was you, what would you do differently? And it's a bunch of uh, crickets. It's a room to turn its crickets. Yeah, you know, it's just, yeah, anyway. Um, so let's talk about healthcare in general, though. Um, you know, I've talked about this with, with candidates both in the Republican primary and the, the Democrat primary. Um, and I think the, the, you know, what I've said to everyone is I think – Anybody with a brain that looks at the healthcare system in America can see that something is amiss, right, in terms of prices and how much it costs. Um, you know, some people say that because of the, the problems in, in, in the healthcare system, the government should step in and the government should provide healthcare. Other people say that the government has caused it, and this is probably where I lean, that the government regulations have caused a lot of the, the issues in the healthcare system and the government needs to get out and let the free market sort of come in and, and prices will naturally sort of come down and services will get better. Where do you stand on that? Where do you land on, on how, how much of a role should the government play in healthcare? You know, I, I agree with you. It should be it should be minimal where they have private insurance. There. What did what was the arguments for the Affordable Care Act that we that this that these selling points were that we want to cover everyone? These bl- these statements of everyone should be covered. Um, every American, you know, blah blah. But is every American insured today? No, no. You know, and you, you got um, you have. The problem was that you have um, you had these base requirements. It, Affordable Care Act wasn't ready for prime time. It wasn't ready at all, but it was a political strategy. So right. I think that you know the best uh, people complain that government it makes too much decisions and you know come into their lives. Where I was handling veterans affairs uh, for vice chairman, if the government was terrible at giving health care and and um, giving these services for 1.7 million veterans, 
what did we think was going to happen that they were going to do a better job when you lumped everybody else in there? Right. Yeah. You expand that to 300 million people and you think that the, that is going to improve like that just, it's what? insane. No, yeah. no, yeah. And that was, that was a terrible idea, but it, it was, again, is, you know, you sh- poor words, but you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There there's people that had insurance. We could have improved on it. There was compromises and negotiations, to, you know, re- you know, that you could do cross state lines that, you know, I think one of the, and I hate to interrupt you, but I think one of the fallacies that we operate from, this is a, this just a thing that everyone sort of, this is the thing that everyone believes and says, well, you have to have insurance in order to get healthcare. I think we need to challenge that idea. We need to challenge that idea to say that the health insurance industry is part of the problem, right? They are banking billions upon billions of dollars every year off of premiums that people pay in while denying coverage and service and inflating the prices of those service in collusion with hospitals and doctors and medical organizations. I don't think that, that access to insurance or insurance coverage is the answer to people being able to get healthcare. I think the question is how do we get to a point where healthcare is affordable and people can access healthcare, but don't you don't necessarily have to have an insurance plan to do it. If healthcare yeah. prices were reasonable, you wouldn't need a middleman. Um, and and you know I think that's that that's one of the things that 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 I see. Like everyone says, well, the, you know we got to work with insurance. You got to have insurance. Well, I can tell you here in Jacksonville, Florida Blue, I harp on them all the time. They've got this huge campus with four like 20 story buildings and they're hiring people entry level positions at 100k a year. Well, that money comes from either the government that they receive because the healthcare agencies receive a lot. The insurance agencies receive a lot of government funds or it comes mm-hmm. from the premiums that people pay in and then the copays and the money that people pay to Florida blue. Like, and I'm not, I'm not against any company making a profit, but I sure. think when the government steps in and creates regulations, which then create barrier to entry and then stifle a free market, what you see is certain companies are able to come in and, and pad their pockets to a point where it actually is detrimental in something like healthcare where people are having to pay so much to get it, you know, for, for basic stuff. I do think, you know, there's a problem there, but, but I, you know, I think I hear you saying that like, you know, we've got a, the, the, the Obamacare, you know, the affordable care act was, was just a God awful legislation. I think there's maybe one piece of it that I've always said probably was a good idea to make it so that everyone can have some sort of coverage regardless of pre-existing conditions. I think that there's yeah. an idea there that's probably got some merit. I don't know mm-hmm. that you needed the, you know, however many hundreds of page documents of Obamacare to get there. But, but I just think that the, the freer we can get the market in terms of healthcare people, if people were able to choose healthcare outside of like their, their state borders and there's just all sorts of regulations here um, that, that just pour into, to essentially healthcare costs going up. And, and, you know, and I, it's good to hear you say that, you know, more regulation is not the answer um, and, and government healthcare isn't necessarily you know, more government healthcare isn't necessarily going to fix anything for anyone or, or make it better. I, I like what you said earlier. And that's what I was telling you. I was like, give me, you gave the last one, eight years, the one before that's twenty one. give me two years. Just give me two years. If I don't do anything and everything that I say I'm going to do, then, you know what I mean? I'll vote for the other person in 2022. If I don't do everything I say, but you're right. It's uh, we've been putting band-aids on shark bites with these legislation amendments, amending 1970 something. I told people, give me two years. I could just rewrite Title 38, you know, the Veterans Affairs Code, Title 10, Armed Services, and we could make it work in today's world, taking out all those things that are archaic, you know, oh, well, we didn't know that it will do this from the Marriage System Protection Board, so even though we know that they're guilty for this, we can't fire them. You know, it's all these little things. 
um, that we're just putting layers and layers on top of things. So with all those smart people, with all those people getting so much money up there, and if they're not even going to pass the budget or do their other jobs, I think they could, I don't know, maybe look into this. Yeah, you would think so, right? Um, so let's talk about veterans a little bit more. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. You know, we talk about taking care of veterans, and I don't think, you know, there's very few people that I think would disagree that that should be a priority. If we're going to send people off to fight in wars, then we should yeah. take care of them mentally, emotionally, physically when they return. Um, <clears throat> but, um, I, you know, my, my sort of thinking on that is the best way to, you know, take care of our veterans is to not send them overseas to die unnecessarily, right? We've been in Afghanistan, what, for nearly two decades now. Uh, what are your thoughts around ending some of these conflicts that we're in, um, you know, in, in, like, how do we, how do we get out of these quagmires so that we're not creating additional generations of veterans that need long-term care because, you know, if they're not over there fighting and getting injured and killed in these wars, you know, it, it, we don't, we don't, we're not creating problems that they're going to have the rest of their life. Like what are your thoughts on ending some of the conflicts, I guess, is my long winded question. Um, I, I would probably more focus on the veteran side. Well, I, the military side is, it's obviously tricky. You know, it's the one argument one side is going to say that if we pull out now, then we lose the stability. And the problem is that something as important as this, not having all the facts, you, you can't really make a you know, definitive answer. Right. Um, others would say that, like you said, well, if it's not our land, it's not our problem, you know, we have problems here. Uh, we're spending too much. Uh, why don't we cut that? Um, so, well, let me ask a different question then. Let me ask you a different question. So let, let's say in the future there's some additional conflict that um, America's drawn into. It, in your opinion, is it the job of Congress or the job of the president to be able to initiate, you know, we call them Congress. conflicts, but they're essentially wars. Congress. Um, Congress, it, it should absolutely be a Congress war. And yeah, there, the president can, if there's imminent danger or, you know, um, something that's going to affect our national security in those cases. But it should absolutely be Congress. The problem that we have right now is that people don't just like the word war. They don't like the word war. Right. But it doesn't help. we got to be realistic. We should decide right here, right now in 2020, do we believe we are at war? Because it doesn't help if we are at war and it's a cold war, meaning that if China, if China is, is, if we are at war with China, then we should call a spade a spade because it doesn't help that our troops and our country has to play by the rules or rules of engagement, considering that we aren't in war technically. Uh, but if we do believe it with the cyber threats, with the money manipulations, then we should call a spade a spade. Um, so absolutely believe that Congress has the authority today, should be maintained that, but um, uh, let me ask you this. It's the, if we're talking about mental health, mental health is what I want to address as the veterans. But there are many cases where they, you don't even go to Iraq or Afghanistan and people have PTSD and mental health here. So the bigger question is what causes these things? It, it's not necessarily just war or you know, blanketed you see a friend die. Is there something to say about um, – and I think they started doing this, but looking at the mental health going into it as well as going out of it. But I want to start tracking what goes on, you know, while we train these individuals. Yeah, we want them to be hard. We want them to be, you know, tough. But there's also this question I have of during that process of breaking them down and building, you know, making them stronger, we only give, what, two, three weeks to prepare them for the civilian life. You know, thank you for serving. Thank you for sacrificing out there. You know, here's two to three weeks. Here's a bunch of material. Uh, good luck with the rest of your life. 
So the transition part is what I want to focus on. Interesting. Yeah. So <clears throat> let, let me ask you this question. It's sort of my last question for you, I guess. Um, how do you view the role of a congressman um, as it relates back to the counties that, that are in your district, right? What value can an individual you specifically bring to, you know, areas like Clay County um, when you get to Congress? What, how do you view that role and what do you, what do you feel like um, is, what should a, an effective person in Congress be able to provide back to their districts when, when they make it to Congress? It is that conversation. It's that information. You know, we, we're, it's, they're going around and right now it's, it's too glamorous. It's a movie position. It's an acting position. Um, so I think that it needs to go back to the basics of, you know, people should be informed. Again, I, I, when I came back down here, I didn't tell people that I was running for Congress. I just joined all these meetings. And then I remember getting a legislative update from the staff of the current member. And I got to tell you, I did not feel informed. Um, there were suspension bills. The funny thing is one of the ones that were on special that we were talking about was one of the last bills I introduced for Gus Bill Arrakis, the Veteran Act. Um, but there's no summaries. I knew what they were talking about because I was there, but if I was a voter, there was no way that that was informative, but everybody just lets give some passes. Nobody yeah. asks any questions. Uh, we go along with it and they go, okay, that was, that was the ledge briefing. Nobody asks them whys. I think from now on that people should, Anytime that a member, a candidate says all these good talking points, just ask them, how are you going to do that three times, like back to back? They'll go, all right, we're going to make it account. How are you going to do that? Oh, well, we do that. And let's just see how far they go. Right. Because I think the mainly they're just talking points that sound good, but ultimately they don't have a clue, which is the problem. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah. Yeah, it, it's hard for me to, to think that the average citizen, you know, um, knows what the heck people in Congress you know, their, con their congressional representatives are doing all day. I was concerned because when I came down, I was talking about, I prep, really prep for actually knowing the policy because that's what I bring differently. And then it concerned me when I came down here and I was telling people, I would get some individuals that say, well, Joe, we don't, nobody cares about that. You know, right. they want you to be likable. They want you to be whatever. I was like, well, that's a problem because yeah, these people could be likable, but when they go to Congress and they don't know these things, and then they have to hire somebody, staff, chief staff, an LD, somebody. And depending on who you get, because you're not going to get cream of the crop as a freshman member. You think somebody, a Joe Mulatto, that was working for a senior member that knows this stuff is going to say, you know what, I'm just going to leave everything I'm working for and work for this freshman member. Right. Doubtful. So depending on who you get, you pretty much elected, if it's a freshman member who doesn't know what they're doing, You've elected twelve different people, twelve different ideas, not this one likable person. Yeah, that's that's an interesting, uh, interesting way of thinking of it. Yeah, that's uh, I never thought I of it that way. People focusing on the right things, where I say, yeah. you know what, close your eyes. If uh, think about who you envision to be your next representative, I mean, we're going to start thinking immediately: the physical qualities, dark, you know, brown hair, whatever. And so now let's do this again. Close your eyes again and think about the qualities that aren't physical. Would you want them to be determined, you know, um, uh, unwavering, uh, passionate? And open your eyes. I'm that candidate. I might not have the physical qualifications that you're looking for, but every single one of those intangibles, I don't care if it's a list of 10, 20, or 50 qualities, I have every single one of those qualities. 
and we are going to prove it August 18th. This is, again, David and Goliath's story. Once we prove it, the game changes. We share this knowledge. Knowledge is a power. The ability to share knowledge is power. And next thing you know, Republicans, Democrats, um, of good people, good Americans, wanting to see a future, putting it first, and not just a talking point, we're going to be running Congress. And it's changing of the guard, simply put. Yeah, man, that's uh, that's good stuff. You know, you know, like I said, I'm always drawn to to underdog David and Goliath stories. So, um, you know, I'll tell you what I tell everybody. A, you know, thanks for coming on, spending some time with me today. I really appreciate that. B, uh, best of luck at the polls. And then, you know, last thing is when you win, I want you to come back on the podcast. Let's do a victory lap and talk about uh, your plan for your first hundred days. Are you kidding me? Once I win, I'm going to be giving, keeping you guys informed so much. You're going to be like, Joe, stop calling me. No, we don't want you on the show. We, we already know what's going on this week. I'm going to have you guys so informed. I'm going to be on your shows. We're going to be the most transparent and accountable congressman that you're ever going to have. All right. Well, there you have it. Joe Dallas Mulatto. Appreciate your time, man. Hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too.